This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. At N Plus One Mag.com, they've been publishing a ton of clarifying writing about the pandemic that might be of interest to Dig listeners like you. One essay that you might like is Gabriel Winnant's Coronavirus and Chronopolitics on Generational Politics and Healthcare. Winnant historicizes the shrinking of the American healthcare system over the past generation and the Trump administration's more recent attempts to deregulate the private nursing home industry. Winnant writes, quote, There is a great contradiction embodied in the facts that the virus is fundamentally a threat to the old, that this threat has been magnified enormously by the incompetence and malice of the ruling regime, and that the old are the primary mass political constituency of that regime. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year subscription to N Plus One in print. Go to nplusonemag.com slash the dig to subscribe and enter the dig one word at checkout. You'll get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archive, which includes great essays like Gabriel Winnant's and free entry to readings and events whenever those happen again, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig and enter the dig at checkout. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. An acute crisis like this imposes a hard distinction between before and after. It's this sense that the ideas we once used to make sense of the world are no longer helpful for understanding things now that everything can only make sense by reference to corona. COVID-19 has indeed changed everything, but everything we already knew on the left is in significant part precisely what we need to know to analyze and then act upon these monumental changes. The fact that coronavirus is a global pandemic with its epicenter in the United States rather than an outbreak that was stamped out early is the result of the political and economic systems that were in place before COVID emerged. The fact that Donald Trump is the president in charge right now that so many poor people and disproportionately black poor people are dying, that our healthcare system is a for-profit murderous disaster, COVID explains little of this because the explanations are by and large to be found in the history that came before. The U.S. war on Iraq, and perhaps even more so the powerful failure to reckon with the people and the politics that made it happen, are signal events in this recent history of the present. Today, 
I'm interviewing Brendan James and Noah Colwyn about Blowback, their new podcast series on the Iraq War. It is very good, and it is not just about the specifics of the Iraq invasion and occupation, but also about the deeper colonial and imperialist history that made the war happen, the very history that the event of the war rendered invisible to so many people. Today, Joe Biden is the presumed Democratic nominee in part because people like him who led the invasion were never held accountable. And so they can act like it's no big deal. Mistakes were made. It was a long time ago. George W. Bush had to be redeemed in part because Joe Biden had to be redeemed. The fate of the entire bipartisan establishment was bound together. The consequences of the Iraq invasion are still being felt so powerfully, obviously, in Iraq, the broader Middle East, and the world beset upon by ISIS and by Islamophobia and nativism. Look right here at home, in a United States, where the lack of accountability and consequences, the total impunity for this murderous affair, allowed Donald Trump's interpretation of what has gone wrong to win the day. This is, in short, all terribly horrible and disgusting. Anyhow, you can learn a lot more about it by listening to Blowback, which is available exclusively on Stitcher Premium. And for a month, you can listen to it for free. And I recommend that you do. Go to stitcherpremium.com and sign up with the code BLOWBACK, one word, B-L-O-W-B-A-C-K, for one month free, and then listen to blowback. Before we get started, we are obviously busy making new podcasts all the time, and we're also working on setting up Dig Book Clubs, which are getting going very soon. We have a lot of people signed up, and we are also putting together a limited-time, more narrative series on the politics of COVID. And we can only do all of this thanks to you, our listeners supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you are interested in joining or hosting a dig book club or in contributing to the COVID series, there is more information at thedigradio.com. But anyways, if you do have steady income right now and you can afford to do so, please support us with what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Brendan James and Noah Coolwin. Brendan James is co-host and producer of Blowback and a writer, musician, and former producer of Chapo Trap House. Noah Coolwin is a co-host of Blowback who has covered technology and politics for The Outline, New York Magazine, Jewish Currents, and elsewhere. Brendan James and Noah Colwin, welcome to The Dig. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I want to start with the question of why this podcast about the Iraq War Right now, because you obviously started before reality became entirely defined by coronavirus, but we can't 
understand this crisis or anything without understanding why we've been cursed with the dystopian political economy that existed prior to the crisis and is thus shaping the response to the crisis and the entire course of the pandemic. And to understand that, I think you're entirely right that we have to look to the Iraq war because, as you say, it provides a skeleton key for the present and it provides a skeleton key in part because, as you also say, the memory of the Iraq war has been stuffed down the memory, our collective memory hole. So to start out, how did Iraq get stuffed down the memory hole and what has the result of this mass forgetting, this mass disassociation been? So uh, when Brandon and I first sort of came up with the, the idea and just this general interest, I think a lot of what we were responding to was the stuff that you saw in the news, you know, like George W. Bush getting candy from Michelle Obama and all that kind of stuff. And it was rage inducing, <laughs> but I think we didn't want to let our anger at that just sort of stay as anger. And we had a bunch of questions about like, well, why did George W. Bush, whom we agreed you know, previously, at least we thought we agreed, was this bad guy when he left the presidency. Why is he being rehabbed now? And I think that the Iraq war, as Brendan and I sort of came to understand it when we began researching and looking into it, the Iraq war was this incredible process in and of itself of forgetting. And we did a lot of things that we wanted uh, to make ourselves forget, but also that were so bad that if we were to have held people adequately accountable, it would have totally, it would have just produced a totally distended portrait of who we thought ourselves to be and what we thought our government would be capable of uh, at this moment. Yeah, I think that forgetting is part of the algorithm of empire. And, you know, the Iraq war is a story yeah. of the, uh, probably the last stand of what we used to think of as the American empire. It was never really the same after that, the last gasp of pure hubris. But that's not to say the empire, of course, uh, ended with the Iraq War, and what you need to do every so often is is have a cleanse, basically, and and rehabilitate old figures. Uh, that happens a lot throughout history in any given empire. Turn them into respectable figures, uh, whether they be dead or alive, and that's a way to not lose the faith you have in this in this imperial project. And whether it serves a purpose for domestic or foreign conquest. It's something that you have to do over and over again, and part of even the title of our show, Blowback, in order for blowback and the cycle of blowback, that is to say, consequences of our previous meddling and, and, and violence done toward the rest of the world, the way that needs to work is that you need to forget as well, and, and you need to cleanse your palate and find yourself surprised when all of a sudden guys you trained in the hills of Afghanistan that were rabidly, militantly dedicated to jihad end up blowing up your center of global commerce. Things like that require forgetting. And I think we were tempted to refresh everybody, not only on why George W. Bush personally is evil, but what uh, forgetting that serves, what what purpose it serves. Right. It's not just like victors are the ones who get to write the history. It's, as you say, being a global hegemon requires as part of its process of legitimation, as part of its ideology, as part of its attempt to convince itself and others that it is a legitimate hegemon, it requires that history be rewritten and forgotten in particular ways. 
in real time as well. I saw the other day there was some uh, just some stooge from that Bush era who was saying that uh, George Bush never politicized 9-11 like Trump is politicizing <laughs> uh, the uh, the uh, coronavirus, which, of course, is a whole pill to swallow on its own. But I remarked at the time it was worse than that because the interviewer that was getting this insane quote was Nicole Wallace, who was at one point uh, for much of his presidency Bush's director of communications, who then just with the revolving door we're familiar with in Washington, swept right in, is now shaping history and doing that uh, cleanup in real time to have not just the the interviewee erase people's memory about how intensely politicized the Bush administration was regarding 9-11, but also the interviewer is the one hitting that home. So there's no room to really, uh, for a normal person watching that segment, insofar as normal people watch MSNBC, there's no room for them (laughs) to come out with any conclusion, uh, especially given that now we've all culturally decided that America was basically fine until Trump came along. So yeah, it it is absolutely necessary for for, for those up top for for this process to happen. And new erasures reaffirm and deepen pre-existing erasures, which is why your podcast goes not only, is not only about taking a fresh look at the monstrosity of the entire political moment around the invasion of Iraq, but looking much deeper than that into the history behind it, the whole invisibilized arc of history of the U.S. and European colonial powers in that region more generally, the U.S. backing Iraq in its murderous war against Iran, the selling out the Kurds to to Saddam during the Cold War, let alone the entire history of British colonialism in Iraq after World War I. Why do you think it's so important to make 2003 clear, to make to also make the entire kind of century of history that precedes it clear as well? Uh, you know, I think on one level, it's because it's the same cast of characters. You have Donald Rumsfeld, you know, helping bring Saddam and the U.S. closer together in the 1980s. And then you have him as the Secretary of Defense when we invade Iraq in the 2000s. And so I think that it's not, you know, they're just different chapters of the same story. Colin Powell, you know, is is Joint Chiefs, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs during the Gulf War. Uh, Obviously, he comes back as Secretary of State. Uh, Similarly, Dick Cheney's uh, Secretary of Defense in the Gulf War. So there's there's other characters as well. It is then maybe a bit more useful to think of, you know, American policy toward Iraq and American interests in Iraq and how American power gets wielded vis-a-vis Iraq as sort of one longer story that, you know, by the time we get to the point of the invasion in 2003, it sort of makes sense as to why the U.S. or why these people continually act in this way now, you know, even with the hindsight that it was also doomed and, and fucked in retrospect. I'd also say that with regard to the even deeper history, we get into the Cold War politics. You know, Iraq had a, a revolution, a pretty significant revolution in the, in the 50s that essentially abolished the British-sponsored monarchy. That gave birth to a lot of different uh, fresh and exciting politics for Iraqis to finally seize their own destiny. The U.S., of course moved in pretty quickly to stomp out any possibility of that happening. And one consequence of that was the Ba'ath Party coming to power with the support of the CIA. 
because they were uh, hardcore anti-communists. They were very, very, very uh, hardcore anti-communists. And of course, in the tradition of blowback, the Ba'ath Party was the party that Saddam Hussein would soon take over, who we would then depose in 2003 and, and try to knock off in 1991 as well. But even before that, even even when we're talking about the British Empire, obviously the show is it focuses mostly on America, as a wise man said, death to America, of course. That's our main villain in, in the story. But to bring up British imperialism as well, I think, serves to show that this is really the same playbook. You know, whether you're talking about Britain or America or the French or the German colonial projects, that there is a basic toolkit and there is a basic goal that any of these places have. It's not in the DNA of Americans, or particularly it might be in the DNA of the British. But uh, that, that, <laughs> that imperial era, uh, for example, the British carved up Iraq after World War I, and the conglomerate of oil companies, uh, two parts of whom were, main parts were British, they held the keys to all of Iraq's oil deposits. The Iraqis saw none of it. It was called the Iraq Petroleum Company, but there wasn't one share that went to the nation of Iraq. Similarly, when we invaded in 2003, almost 100 years later, the project of Paul Bremer, the viceroy in Iraq, we're even using the term viceroy there, his job was, his main job, besides pacifying the country, was to crack open that oil market and privatize a whole other bunch of Iraq's national state industry. So that's full circle. That's something that isn't an American prerogative or a British prerogative. It's a prerogative of any empire that seeks to do what empires do, which is plunder and control and guard the spigots of, of the world economy. And there are some aspects of, you know, how America executed this in 2003 that, you know, are, are, I guess, pretty distinctly American. I mean, for example, the fact that we wanted to launch this invasion and to maintain an occupation and to do all this, except that we actually, in a lot of ways, didn't necessarily succeed at even those sorts of attempts. Um, and we failed in our distinct American ways, you know, to talk about Rumsfeld for a second, he envisioned an entire, you know, sort of this like lightweight Light footprint was the phrase that they were very fond of using. Defense department, something that would be leaner and a military that would be leaner and that would be able to accomplish, you know, effectively many of the same goals that these imperial powers had, uh, that they had had and set for themselves in decades. But on the cheap and contracted out. Exactly. And, you know, and and it fits very firmly within sort of, you know, this kind of like neoliberal tradition of trying to apply that sort of, I I guess, that, that sort of policy rubric and theory of political economy, um, you know, more broadly. And and I think you can see that failure in Iraq um, quite vividly. The U.S. certainly did like mis, quote unquote, mismanage the invasion and occupation on technocratic grounds. But of course, and unsurprisingly, that critique also sort of gives cover to people like liberal supporters of the war who then disassociate themselves from it afterwards by saying, well, it was poorly managed. Yes. One thing we definitely wanted to do with the show was, of course, the invasion. Well, not really the invasion. That went pretty smoothly by yeah, by, yeah, yeah. By, by American standards. But the occupation and uh, whatever you want to call it, nation building in Iraq, of course it was bungled. And we, we don't pass over all the ways in which it was. But I do think that there's been such an emphasis and, to your point, such a kind of exculpatory emphasis on right. the bungling aspect, I think that has helped figures, not really like Cheney or Rumsfeld, but certainly Bush, to be remembered as basically like Frank Drebin, 
you know, from the Naked Gun, <laughs> where it's just like, well, we we meant well, but oh, the, he's a bit of a goofy cowboy. He he forgot to dot the T's and cross the I's, and that is an overcorrection. And we need to, I think, get back to a more, I think, accurate and honest and therefore critical view, which is that, sure, there were a lot of mistakes, but the basic goal to thrash a country into submission and then create a a base of operations inside the Middle East, that was achieved. And the chaos that spiraled out uh, after that is not altogether unwelcome, as, again, the concept of blowback has long uh, showed us. So was it really that big of a bungle? On the micro level, yes. But um, we want to take Mission Accomplished, you know, that banner that Bush stood in front of that everyone thinks is a punchline. We kind of want to take that at face value in the show, more or less. I think you guys talk about the Bush administration or the Defense Department sending like a penis enlargement guy or a erectile <laughs> dysfunction guy or Dick something Doctor. to talk to a major Shia leader. <laughs> yes, that is in the uh, very, very wonderful book by Rajiv Chandrasekhar on um, Imperial Life in the Emerald City, just so I can cite my source and so no one thinks I made that up. Uh, yes, we, there, there were all kinds of, I mean, absurd and comical <laughs> levels of just like um, in curiosity, you know, lack of any real, I mean, even, even Paul Bremer, uh, the viceroy of Iraq, he was quite the aristocrat. You know, he was a long, like career diplomat. He spoke, I'm sure a bunch of different languages. He was a French trained chef. Uh, he didn't know shit about shit uh, about Iraq. So he, he just, uh, ended up appointing some, some guy who held a patent to penile, um, enhancement, uh, <laughs> implants to go talk to an Ayatollah, uh, inside of Iraq, which is like probably the most inappropriate thing you could do. And, uh, beyond that, you know, there's the much more bloody and horrifying consequences of that sort of cavalier American, right. um, approach. Well, I mean, one one example that I think of a lot in the the story is, uh, you know, like we we demolished in, in uh, the city of Fallujah, um, a, you know, a Sunni stronghold where we where we said there are all these Sunni terrorists that we had to eliminate, and thus therefore we reduced the city to rubble uh, in two thousand four over a couple different battles, um, you know, stage set piece battles, and one of the ways that we were you know going to attempt to you know manage the city of Fallujah was by creating a Fallujah brigade which meant that in many cases, the U.S. military was literally just handing out rifles to people that it had just been fighting, but whom now it was said, like, all right, you're going to help us pacify it. And then they would just be fighting with the guns they gave them months later. And it was this kind of that cavalier attitude, I think, extended just to like the most basic assumptions about, you know, what even it didn't require like sending the dick pill doctor. It was just a matter of like, you know, like empowering U.S. military leaders to make the worst possible decisions um, at every stage. One thing I that I really like about your podcast is that it reminds me of an argument I, I make in my my own book, um, which is about how the the forgetting, like any kind of disavowal of the the origins and trajectory of of the war on terror, really sets the stage for the entire political situation at present because everything just appears like it's out of the blue because it has no history. There's no relevant prior history that the United States might be implicated in. And so instead, we just have interminable enemies who just emerge and threaten and hate us like Iran and ISIS and conflicts that are that are tragic, but whose roots are unknown, like the Syrian civil war, which then leads people to fall behind the same sort of 
leaders who do the same horrible things all over again. To bring it back to your original question, not only about foreign affairs, but about the, the, the politics that we've been living with for the past four years under Trump, uh, it was the Bush administration that created ICE, for example. They, you know, the Department of Homeland Security cropped up in, I believe, 2002 as a direct response to 9-11 and as a transitionary uh, sort of grooming of everybody into thinking about a long-term global war on terror, the chief enemy of whom was Iraq. And out of that Homeland, the Department of Homeland Security came the institution of ICE. This is now obviously one of the most recognizable faces of the abhorrent politics of Trump. But as I'm sure listeners to your show know, ICE had been operating under George W. Bush in an early version, Obama, and then Trump. And the the forgetting or the outright ignorance altogether, the, the never having known, that's something that we try to dedicate some time to in the show with regard to domestic politics, because it is mostly about Iraq. Most of it takes place in Iraq. But the authoritarianism and the descent into a baby's first fascism in America, I think you could very easily uh, do a whole show just on just on how the Bush administration created that edifice as well. And I think that there are some other places in Iraq specifically where you can see this, you know, like at Abu Ghraib and the torture and, and the policy of uh, torture. I think that you see Iraq in a lot of ways as kind of a, if not necessarily exactly a laboratory, it is absolutely a place where a lot of the worst policies and practices that will evolve to become even worse over time were ultimately first carried out or exposed for like their full horror. And uh, I we cut these little uh, teasers. I edit these little trailers for each episode now um, as we're promoting the show to give it some kind of visual component. And when we did the invasion episode, the image I, the images I, I was struck by, and I, I people told me they they were struck by is once we had invaded all the images and video just from the AP Associated Press, uh, you know their archives of uh, American soldiers throwing Iraqis with uh, hoods over their heads into trucks. And just and just driving them away. I mean, I think people rightly recoil in horror at the images that come out of the Trump regime and and the and the the operations of ICE. But I mean, what are we looking at in Iraq if not that that same treatment of human beings? And uh, at a time in which the man in office is now, as Noah mentioned earlier, Secret Santas with Ellen DeGeneres and and Michelle Obama. I mean, that's that's a disgusting you know, j'accuse, I guess, against people who you think are your friends at, at the top of this imperial system who just think, yeah, all's forgotten. Uh, those were just Iraqis after all. I think that we should pause just to emphasize, especially for younger listeners, how sh- shocking it initially was to a lot of us how quickly George W. Bush has been rehabilitated. Because thinking back to, to 2008, when Obama won Bush wasn't just hated by liberals, like really hated by liberals, but also abandoned by many, many conservatives. And he exited office with a rock bottom approval rating. Uh, Oh, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that people also kind of forget um, about sort of, you know, what ushered in his exit was not just Iraq, but it was, you know, the sum total of, you know, sort of a, a huge wide breadth of scandal. I mean, the Alberto Gonzalez, uh, U.S. attorney's firing scandal, just for one example. Um, I mean, Dick Cheney shot a guy. Uh, <laughs> Hurricane Hur- Hurricane Katrina to talk about, you know, a relevant example of a humanitarian domestic catastrophe. 
Right. Expose, exposing the U.S. government's total lack of infrastructure or will to protect vulnerable people's lives in the face of a massive disaster, which we're yes. experiencing just on a nationwide and global level. And all this thing, you know, we talk and have a lot of outrage for how, you know, Trump is, you know, he will defend these obvious incompetents for whom he has affection and is put into, you know, high ranking positions. But, you know, remember heck of a job, Brownie, the uh, former head of the Arabian Horse Association, Michael Brown, that George W. Bush installed as the head of, you know, FEMA. I think that there's like, like the lineage of that kind of stuff is very, very easy to trace. Or Douglas Fife, who you talk about a bit in your podcast. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I really, I, I really do think if you if you actually go back, which is of course the whole point of this podcast, the Bush administration is right is 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 right up there in the tier of Trump level incompetence and uh, cronyism that uh, people think is so uniquely. I mean, I, I get it. Like it's it's it really seems hard to top Jared. You know, but 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 you actually you can actually go go pretty much toe to toe, and um, some of them were more polished than others, perhaps. But Doug Fife, yeah, man, what a rolling calamity! And he ended up Doug Fife. For those who don't know, he was the guy who ran. Uh, he was one of Rumsfeld's key deputies. He was the undersecretary for policy in the Defense Department, and he ran the Office of Special Plans, as it was called, because they couldn't call it the War. The, the evil war scheming committee uh, in the lead up to the Iraq war. They had to give it a bland sounding name. And he was the guy who oversaw the manufacture of evidence to accuse Saddam of having uh, associations with Al Qaeda, perhaps being behind 9-11 and of course having WMD. Uh, he then was put in charge after doing a bang up job with all of that. And he was put in charge of uh, occupying Iraq and he has a Mo Howard haircut. He looks like a fourth stooge of <laughs> if they ever needed a, a fourth one, and he, I, I think in the first episode or so, I try to compile moments of him giving press conferences, and he just can't get a coherent thought out. He is a complete dullard, and it's he was the what was it Tommy Frank said about him? Tommy Frank's called him uh, a stupid, stupidest man he'd he ever said, met or something he said i have to this was the head of central <laughs> command by, by no means a good guy but uh you know someone who had to work with doug fife and he said uh i have to work with the stupidest fucking guy on the face of the earth almost every day and that was doug fife so i mean even within the ghoulish republican and military establishment the bush crowd were uh were renowned for their uh for for their smooth brains I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene, by Brom Boucher and Robert Fletcher. Conservation needs a revolution. This is the only way it can contribute to the drastic transformation needed to come to a truly sustainable model of development. The good news is that conservation is ready for revolution. Heated debates about the rise of the Anthropocene and the current sixth extinction crisis demonstrate an urgent need and desire to move beyond mainstream approaches. Yet, the conservation community is deeply divided over where to go from here. Some want to place half-Earth into protected areas. 
Others want to move away from parks to focus on unexpected and new natures. Many believe conservation requires full integration into capitalist production processes. Building a razor-sharp critique of current conservation proposals and their contradictions, Boucher and Fletcher argue that the Anthropocene challenge demands something bigger, better, and bolder. Something truly revolutionary. They propose convivial conservation as the way forward. This approach goes beyond protected areas and faith in markets to incorporate the needs of humans and non-humans within integrated and just landscapes. Theoretically astute and practically relevant, the conservation revolution offers a manifesto for conservation in the 21st century, a clarion call that cannot be ignored. The conservation revolution Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene by Brom Boucher and Robert Fletcher. Out now from Verso Books. The mass forgetting also, I think, reflected this incredible weakness of the left throughout the decade, which is something that we should keep in mind as we mourn the end of the Bernie campaign, at least as we had known it, that, that we're still in a much stronger place and we're just plain relevant, which was not the case in the 2000s. There was a strong anti-war movement, not against the invasion of Afghanistan at all, because I was at those protests and not many people were, but the anti-Iraq war movement was really big, but it was short-lived, incredibly short-lived, and then immediately folded into the 2006 midterm elections when the Democrats took back Congress and then into Obama's 2008 campaign who was an anti-war candidate of sorts in the way he was presented and interpreted. I think one place where you can sort of locate at least some of the blame, um, if not all of it, uh, but at least a substantial chunk of it, was the degree to which a lot of the Democratic political leadership who, you know, are ostensibly, I mean, as, as we know, this is a joke, but are ostensibly supposed to at least represent a left of some sort. Uh, and they just became Bush's willing co-conspirators in many respects. Well, they offered very large, big, you know, big picture criticisms of Bush and saying that he lied and that he was bungling the war. You know, they were happy to continue helping to pass the bills to fund the war. And they were happy to pass the bills that allowed the White House to acquire all of the executive power with which they could do the bungling. So I think that, you know, if you want to look for or identify some of the weakness of the left, a lot of it is because the people who were supposed to, whose idea, whose job, like, you know, the people whose jobs were supposed to be to represent something like an opposition, instead just became lapdogs to power. The Democratic Party was the grave digger of the anti-war movement. I mean, it's, it wasn't the Republican Party. They were doing all the war. That was, that was a very good uh, opponent to have if you're an anti-war movement. It was the Democratic Party. I, I interviewed Cindy Sheehan a couple years ago in the lead up to the 2016 election to talk a bit about what she felt about um, Hillary being the candidate and, and the Democrats betraying her back in uh, the midterms in 2006 because Pelosi and, and the congressional leadership of the Democrats – and they did take back in a in, in a in a bloodbath. They took back Congress. They used Sheehan in particular, but also the anti-war movement as their credential, as as they, they were trotted out for the Democrats uh, to uh, embarrass Bush and to claim that they would essentially end the war was the real promise. And once they got in, they completely abandoned all of them, taught the anti-war movement 
uh, yet another lesson about what it means to trust the Democratic Party. And the, the movement pretty much fizzled. I mean, unfortunately, as you say, it was not much of a broader uh, sort of movement other than this very specific issue, very worthy issue of ending the war in Iraq. But when you're attached to a gang of complete flimflammers like the Democrats, and they and they betray you when they get back in power and don't owe you really anything. Your movement is almost certain to dissipate. I'm not saying that's the only thing that was contaminating the anti-war movement, but it was certainly the reason why they fell out of any real position of notice or power in, in the mid-2000s. And as you say, it took a long time after that for any public face of, you know, if you like, radical uh, demands from from the American uh, left to, to to come up again. And I do think, Dan, you said a moment ago, you talked a moment ago a bit about, you know, how Barack Obama ran an anti-war campaign of sorts. Well, I think that part of that was also not that he ran an anti-war campaign of sorts, but that he spoke to a very obvious disaffection. And, you know, just he, he didn't mm -hmm. he didn't deny the very clear reality of how bad things were going. And the fact that all of the you know, that his primary opponent, Hillary Clinton, was somebody who had voted to help make those bad things the way that they were. And to talk again about things that, you know, like the, the sort of eternal recurrence of this, I had a very big aha moment when I was going through some of the reporting about why Hillary Clinton did not want to, you know, what was her response to the fact that she had, you know, supported the war in 2007, 2008, when she was being pressed on that by Obama. And what she, you know, what it later emerged, uh, what she told staffers was that she thought an apology or taking responsibility for it would be a distraction, that it was irrelevant and that it, it wasn't an issue. And, I can't think of any way that the Clinton campaign choosing to deny a big liability could ever be something that would later bite them in the ass. It's just not something that uh, <laughs> I, I've ever, it's far beyond, far, far beyond. And also the, the Iraq war was insanely unpopular by the time that o Obama was running for office. Uh, he, he did not talk the same way about, in my opinion, an equally destructive and disgusting war in Afghanistan because he didn't, feel politically required to. And in fact, when he got into office, he couldn't not withdraw from from Iraq, which was a good thing, of course. But he increased the levels of troops in Afghanistan by the tens of thousands. And this became liberal Democratic Party orthodoxy, at least beginning in 2004 with John Kerry's race, this idea that there was a good war and a bad war. Absolutely. Sort of. And we took our we took our eyes off the ball, Absolutely. which is a technical. And so opposition to the Iraq war doesn't is not embedded within some larger anti-imperialist critique. It's like a technocratic critique that we did the war on terror correct and there's all types of figures there's there's degrees of that throughout this whole uh sordid story because you have john Kerry, as you just pointed out we have a whole episode on the the 04 elections and why he reporting was reporting for duty yeah reporting <laughs> for duty just the just the most uninspiring possible mummy figure that you could have dug up uh, but also until twenty six until uh, twenty twenty until that point yeah exactly uh, and and you know that's another thing I guess we should mention that is um, that Joe Biden uh, we sort we we bring him up during the show but we were recording this most of January and February so it wasn't quite clear how much of a mainstay in our political uh, landscape he was going to be still at that moment and unfortunately he's turned out to be at least for the next several months still in front of us but. Biden was the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He had, if anyone in the Democratic Party had the access and the basic position to sniff out what a horrifying crime this was looking to be in the mid-2002 or early 2002, let alone, uh, you know, go time in, in March 2003, it would have been him. And he was one of the most 
enthusiastic advocates for it and famously called it uh, not a march to war, but a march to peace. So uh, this guy... uh, Cool. That's literally Orwellian. Yes. 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 (laughs) Literally. And I was cutting the audio to use in the show of, you know, uh, a lot of senators. um, There's a montage we have in episode three of of some of the the key figures you'll recognize today voting for for the war, and then some that voted against it, Bernie Sanders and Barbara Lee being among them. But when I was cutting the audio, Hillary, she got up there, you know, I'll give her this. She she did it in about fifteen minutes. She gave her speech and then and then voted for the war and, and sat down. Uh, Biden spoke for like three hours. He wouldn't <laughs> shut the fuck up about how how great the war was going to be or how it was. You know, not, there wasn't going to be a war because Saddam was just going to surrender or whatever. He gave it, like a Fidel level stem winder. He grew to a be- he grew war. he grew a Fidel beard <laughs> during the speech, and I was just like, Jesus, this guy just never shuts the fuck up. So yeah, he was he he that. That was insult to injury. And he not only was a leading supporter of the war, but then in the Obama administration proposed ethnic cleansing as the he solution. He came up with an insane... Remember that insane idea, Brendan, that he came up with for how to like manage Iraq? He wanted to carve it up into three different, as Daniel just said, three different uh, ethnically cleansed territories, uh, which is after supporting the initial invasion and the war, and then being a weasel and, and running away from that and claiming that you want to fix the problem by ethnic cleansing, that's sort of the worst position you could have. Uh, well, I, I do think that there is something that Brennan's also getting to that gets a little bit away from Biden specifically, but it's another thing that I feel like is a big part of the story, which is about the fact that like, when we got to Iraq, Iraqi society was not, you know, riven with sectarian conflict naturally, at least to anything resembling to which to the degree that we unleashed on the country. And part of what made intermarriage was super common in Baghdad. Yes. I mean, like Sunni and Shia lived side by it was a fairly diverse society. That's not to say that there were intentions um, or that there wasn't even sectarian violence on some level. But the degree to which things changed from, you know, pre-invasion to, let's say, 2005, it's it's pretty much impossible to overstate. And so part of what I guess makes the Joe Biden solution particularly horrifying is because it feels like, you know, proposing apartheid as a as 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 a solution to a previously, you know, like functional system. It was only our intervention that messed it up in the first place, obviously. Or to bring it back to the question about the 20th century history we dig into in the first episode, like the British, where he just wanted to take out yes. a big a big red pen and carve into the earth his preferred division of one country into three or four. Uh, this stuff, it doesn't really change from, from <laughs> century to century. Uh, and unfor- unfortunately, neither does the carnage that, that comes out of those, those types of decisions. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a solution, a proposed solution that participates and facilitates this whole process of mass forgetting because it frames Iraq's problems as not rooted in the U.S. invasion or more profoundly in the history of of Western colonialism and and petro global petro capitalism and all of this stuff, but in these these ancient tribal sectarian animosities, they're problems that come from Iraq. Yeah, it's like the Balkans. That the outside world needs to solve. In Iraq, I think a lot of normal Americans, Americans don't tend to care about foreign policy at all, um, be it good or bad. They thought, well, these religious psychotics in uh, Iraq, they should just calm down. You know, what, what, what's the big deal? We were trying to help you out. And uh, that was another way in which, as you point out, we could pathologize the country rather than face up to any, again, any accountability for what happens when you try to run the world on a uh, hegemonic British imperial style um, system of conquest. 
And there we see part of the Trump, the Trump and Trumpism origin story as well, because we have this process of forgetting. We have no strong left wing movements at the time that can frame the situation, what's going wrong in anti-imperialist terms. And so Trump and the right are able to identify the enemy and the source of the problem as Islam and the solutions is xenophobia and this kind of militaristic pseudo isolationism of Trump's. And so. So the Muslim ban is the imperialist war on terror coming home to roost as nativist politics. Well, that's I, I think that somebody who, you know, I, 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 well, some people may be taking his name out of their mouths at, uh, at the moment. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> had the best response, um, I think, to this like very particular line and that he formulated yeah. very successfully, uh, at least within Britain, I thought this kind of idea of actually framing anything resembling, you know, the, the knife attacks in, in the UK, framing all of that as actually a consequence of our own meddling, our own decision making that we saw with our own eyes in Iraq. And so, like, there is absolutely a very transparent, obvious and lucid left wing case to be made. It's just that nobody in America outside of, you know, our dear recently departed has ever seemed to have the, the courage to make it, at least on a national stage, like, providing a single coherent answer uh, that everybody can see. And that's that, that, uh, that point there about the, the Trumpified version of how to process and frame, um, the enemy and the global war on terror. That's something that we, we try to touch on as well, as far as aftershocks of the Iraq war. I mean, Trump ran against the Iraq war in 2016. Uh, he was, I mean, honestly, there were moments where, you know, uh, I'll say it completely, you know, with with some guilt, but at the time, no one thought he was going to win. You know, it was kind of awesome when he was on the debate stage with fucking Jeb Bush and uh, Ted Cruz owning just him, owning them, saying there were no WMD. They all lied. And the audience at first, the audience booed him in the first couple debates. But they're all hogs. They all they all just switched over once they saw he was the strong man and said, oh, you know what? Yeah, that was probably all a bunch of lies. So n- n- none of the because well, he, he had that important asterisk. He had the important asterisk of we, we shouldn't have gone in, but if we did, we should have taken the oil, which is the perfect kind of turn twist. Yes, to make it was. It. It, it is a it is a xenophobic, know nothing type of rejection of imperial wars of conquest. Not because, as you said, it's based in any anti imperialist logic, but because they're all savages over there and they should just go on whatever you know, chopping their heads off or whatever the the, the parody is that they picture in their heads, and we should just take their resources while they're not looking. And that is not uh, a sufficient way to let these scoundrels and guys like Trump get away with being the only really meaningful anti-war voice in American politics. And I, I think right-wing populism, it's not to, to credit it or to say there's, they're starting to come over to our side. But when we look at the, the way that certain things are mutating right now, which is absolutely connected to the massive explosion of trust that fell apart in the Bush administration after the war in Iraq and how the right has kind of reconstructed itself or is, is doing so. We, we don't need to kid ourselves that they're on our side, but we need to take that seriously. That's a very scary thing if the right mutates into something that has the monopoly on uh, non-intervention in, in, in the world. On, interpre- in a, on interpreting the geopolitical mess yeah, we've because made. Yeah, because they'll be right, because they'll, they'll be right on, on several points, even if their reasoning is disgusting. And they also have, you know, they thrive because there is no cogent, visible left-wing answer or alternative that we have been able to present thus, thus far. Bernie Sanders started to do that and articulate and chart a different vision of what that could look like. But the reality is that, like, 
if you were to ask what is the Democratic Party position, what is Joe Biden's position on Iraq or America's role in the world? I don't think I don't think anybody on his team could even give us a straight answer because they've never thought about it. And they never had to think about it. And the only people <laughs> what is Joe Biden's position on fill in the blank? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a very poli- he's running a very policy centered campaign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, that, I, and I think that unlike us, co- personality cultists on the left, you know, yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, but that, it's, it's, it's a very real, it's a very live question to me, which is what ultimately is going to be, you know, the, the, the democratic establishment, such as it is, and it's like weak, desiccated state. What is their, you know, what is the response that they're going to try and formulate if they're going to try and formulate one? Because as Brendan points out, the, the far right has, has, has synthesized an answer to that question. It's a very ugly and dangerous one. And there is, as it stands right now, there's not an alternative. Yeah. And if the Democrat, if there's a total void and no no critique, no comment from the establishment Democrats, then we just have this this Trumpist critique given free reign. And their critique of Bush's imperialism is that it was wrong to try to save and do charity for the Muslims, which is how the neocons framed the war as this noble civilizing mission. And one of the craziest stats that I found researching my book is that Republican public approval ratings of of Islam, of Muslims, skyrockets upward after 9-11. Because this frame, this neocon framing of the war as a civilizing mission holds. And then when it cracks, (laughs) it's the Trumpists who pick up the pieces Uh, and reframe it on their terms. In the Lovecraftian hell that I've been living in, watching um, uh, the archival footage of of the three major cable networks during this this period that we cover in the show... Um, I don't spend a lot of time on Fox because honestly, it's like we know what we think about that side. We the, the ecosystem is clear. It was it was uh, cheerleading and jingoism, et cetera. But as you say, it was this paternalistic jingoism, where um, especially during those images of this that stupid little statue coming down of Saddam and you know the American flag being put over his face and and us helping these poor little Iraqis who couldn't do it themselves with a big uh, tank pulling down the the statue of, of, of the dictator, et cetera. By the way, that moment was completely stage managed. Totally stage managed. Uh, by the Marines, in, in, uh, the Marine Corps in particular, um, and, and, and all these other, you know, uh, photo ops that, that occurred in the early days. Uh, you, hear, you hear Fox News anchors, some of whom will go on to bemoan Obama for not calling all Muslims radical, Islamic, Muslimic-style jihadists. They're saying, oh, in the Arab culture, it's very important to understand that uh, the shoe throwing is a sign of disrespect. And, you know, these people really... In the U.S., it's a friendly gesture. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But just these people, you know, they've been wanting freedom and it warms your heart to see them all finally now, you know, being able to take control of their own destiny. And it's this paternalism that sounds like... And I'm sure they're patting themselves on the back that all these Fox News viewers and indeed hosts were thinking, yeah, I'm I'm a friend of the Arab. You know, I'm I'm helping him uh, kick out this cartoon bad guy. And uh, I'm, I'm I could I, I could see myself, you know, being friends with, you know, maybe uh, a, a few of these people, the good ones. Well, yeah. Well, but then it's, you know, and then you immediately like the camera shifts and suddenly you're asking any like literally any Muslim in America who lived those years or any Iraqi who lived those years. And you will find out that that paternalism is entirely a facade. And that it was yeah, just cause... like a, like a, such a like such a transparently flimsy justification for wanting to do all these things. It coexisted with us, uh, the the Bush administration, that's to say, infiltrating mosques, developing the new capacity to spy on and disrupt uh, life in Muslim communities inside of America. And the NYPD, too. Correct. Oh, NYPD, by the way, uh, if people want to tune into the show, they'll get a special guest appearance from 
former NYPD Commissioner Bernie Carrick, who was the Interior Minister of Iraq for about oh. a second. Uh, God, he is a character. That that story is. I mean, there could be an entire podcast, like I don't know, like what eight episodes, kind of telling. The- <laughs> narrating his rise and fall he founded he founded a death squad while he was over there it's insane and and then he got busted for tax evasion and went to prison until recently he got pardoned by trump but and but was nominated bush tried to make him dhs secretary at giuliani's suggestion right yes giuliani who was also the the string of this is uh six degrees here but giuliani was uh also briefly considered to be viceroy of iraq himself Back in back when they were still picking, and it was I think chiefly the reasoning uh, that that he didn't get it was because he was um, sad about nine eleven and was also just starting up a new consultant company. So I think another thing that we should talk about in terms of the present day impacts is just that it really did impact the Democratic primary, and we need to think about this mass forgetting as one reason that Joe Biden defeated or is in the process of defeating Bernie Sanders because. Bernie's attacks on Biden over his support for the Iraq war, he made a a bunch of them and they were totally necessary and justified, but I don't think they really stuck. There was a sense that this was old picking on Biden over over old news. And and so while Bernie's attacks didn't hurt Biden as much as they should have and as much as we would have liked them to still Bernie raising the issue and attacking Biden for supporting the war is is good in and of itself for the same reason that your podcast is because it repoliticizes this history and makes it newly visible. So on the one hand, I'm pissed that the attacks didn't stick and that not enough people considered them relevant. But Bernie, in making those attacks, did more to kind of keep the Iraq history alive and keep it from being erased than than any politician I'm aware of in a long time. Oh, Absolutely. And I also, I guess one thing that I would also note there is that he's making those attacks now, but it's also going to be, you know, the future of the Democratic Party is going to be those attacks. Like, if it's not Joe Biden, you know, it's going to be any of these other, like, sort of stand-in political figures who have the same legacy, the same beliefs, the same attitudes, and they're going to have to suffer the same kind of scrutiny. I think that, like, Bernie is not, if anything, like, it's not like he's going to be the last one to make these critiques within Democratic or left-wing politics, but only he's, like, he's, he's a sign, it's a sign of what's to come, because I think that the awareness and the outrage and the frustration is all through there. Well, I I think it's unfortunately, though, uh, a catch-22 for anyone looking to do this, uh, to attack, say, uh, their opponent on the Iraq war, as as Sanders tried to do with with Biden. Because if you really want that attack to mean anything, you have to say a lot of reasons why America is bad and sucks and is evil, actually. And you have to maybe say, uh, it wasn't just like this vague war where like things blew up and then it ended. We designed a forced labor system. In Fallujah, that's kind of like what the Nazis did. People go, "Oh, well, shut up! That's not my country." What? He's calling us Nazis. He, you have to say we killed at least six hundred thousand people, maybe a million. People go, "Oh, where where are you getting these numbers? That's 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 shut up. This is you know that's that's uncalled for." And you really, I think, will run up. I, I hate to, I'd hate to be right about this, but I I, I wonder how how possible it is to really make the attack and then put teeth on it with the actual facts that are going to make people think you're just sort of like a parody of of whatever they think of as like whatever Michael Moore or some unreasonable lefty or liberal who thinks America is evil, which to 
underscore this. It is. And I and I don't know if Bernie Bernie obviously wasn't ready to make that attack. He 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 had to sound like, you know, we're a country that's worth redeeming. I don't know if the science is really in on that. So I'm I'm not sure how how the attack can ever really graduate to to that more effective way. Corbyn managed to do it. He didn't win in the long run, but I was amazed in 2017 when while supposed terrorism was going on, what people perceived as terrorism was going on inside the UK, he got up there and basically blamed it on imperialism and said we should stop supporting Saudi, and it landed. And I don't know what the ingredients or the conditions are for it to land with the British public coming from Corbyn, but I I don't know if I see it landing even now with the American public uh, from someone like Sanders, unfortunately. The story you're telling is also a media story. It's a media product about other media products, like all good media products. You have like the New York Times' Judith Miller, who infamously, of course, laundered the Bush administration's totally false case for war. To the public. There were some important exceptions, but it wasn't just Judith Miller's active misinformation. There was also this just totally general failure of mainstream media media to to question the invasion. And so Miller's kind of a maybe an extreme example that obscures the more banal everyday deference that in part it's this conventional issue with the media that just emerges in mass media and capitalist societies, you know, basic basic manufacturing consent type stuff. But then everything was even worse because it was exacerbated. All of that already bad stuff was exacerbated by a post 9-11 jingoism that I think younger people who weren't sentient at the time won't recall. And that that jingoism really softened much of what little critical edge did exist in the mainstream media. Say, say a little bit about the, the media's role. Yeah, I th- I think that you can you know there's a few different like kinds of ways or varieties uh, in which the media helped sell the war and helped you know like manufacture a certain set of stories about the case for war and then the war itself. You had people like Judith Miller who were these kinds of willing launderers of bad information or slanted information. You had the pundit class, you know, people like Jonathan Alter, for example. In an early episode, Brendan uh, kicks to me a column that he wrote about how after 9-11 we had to start torturing people. You know, this kind of jingoism after 9-11 that came very naturally to the armchair pundits, liberals and conservatives alike, that would then take roost and then have these people, you know, it would lead them to then vociferously declare that we had to go after Saddam. And then you had a general climate where reporters and stories that actually did come out, you know, the Washington Post had reams of reporting about the shitty case for war. And it was actually quite easy to find a lot of those stories about how shaky the case for war was, but they were just buried. They weren't actually presented on the front page. And in the episode this week, we we actually go through a list of all of those, uh, of a bunch of those articles that were buried. And so I think that, you know, to me, that it's you kind of have to look at all those different sort of pieces and how they fit together. Because while the Judith Millers surely deserve a lot of the blame, there's also a series of institutional failures ranging from The New Yorker to The Washington Post to obviously cable television, where just quite simply, they weren't interested in asking any of those questions. And even when they did ask and they knew and they had the information about how sketchy, you know, what Ahmed Chalabi was saying, uh, when they had the information about how Ahmed Chalabi's, you know, sourcing was total bullshit and hokum, they too chose to ignore it. So it wasn't that they were just totally misled or lied to. I think what some of the failures of the media that at least we discussed reveal was that they were actually, you know, quite comfortable dismissing the information that was made available to them. 
or when you couldn't like in a newspaper for example as noah said there's all these stories that were there you know like they weren't the the lead reporters uh necessarily that were getting all the attention like judy miller or woodward but there there were uh stories coming out in the times or in the post uh, but you can push those to another page in a medium like cable news where it's pretty much right in front of your face and you, you can't marginalize uh, information like that as much. Phil Donahue on MSNBC was crying bloody murder about the war being a horrible and bad idea and they just fired him. Uh, and he obviously, you know, was a staple of most people's like understanding of uh, daytime, uh, you know, American talk shows. And and they just, they, they canned his ass because it was not, it was not, he wasn't getting with the program. So you had that going on in the in journalism proper from, from the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and a bunch of other papers. Then you had the, the pundit side, as Noah mentioned, like the philosopher kings like Thomas Friedman and uh, David Brooks. Um, and we trace their evolution uh, once the war starts going south uh, in this episode that comes out this week about the media. Well, one, one, thing I w- one thing I would also note is that, you know, in sort of in part of in, in this pundit space is also that there was this cottage industry of experts, especially liberals, people like Kenneth Pollack, who wrote a book called The Threatening Storm that was basically supposed to be the liberal intellectuals case for war. You know, I, I remember at this time going into all sorts of, you know, good liberal uh, family friends homes and seeing that book on the shelf. And that had a lot of influence, for example. You had a wide range of experts and people, you know, from Stephen Hayes on the right to somebody like Ken, Kenneth Pollack or um, uh, Paul Berman, ostensibly on the left, who were creating a lot of the material that would then get tossed around on cable news as a justification for buying into all of this cooked intelligence that they had. You had, you know, it was... Or fucking Christopher Hitchens, who was, who never was on TV that I recall when he was a nation writer. Hey, and hey, kind of damn. on the He left. was on C-SPAN a lot. <laughs> with Brian Lehrer. Yeah, and then he becomes a hawk, you know, the, the big hawk who breaks up with the left over the Iraq It's a good racket. invasion and then he's everywhere. I mean, when he gets and, and when his he, celebrity and when explodes, he gets US he's when rewarded. he gets US citizenship, who is it that swears him in? No, you know, it's it's a uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Michael Chertoff swearing him in. I mean, it's it's like he's somebody whose evolution is obviously uh, quite special and psychotic. We 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 talked about him a second, and then I think out of pure and I should disclose, like I when I was in uh, high school, I was a big Hitchens fanboy because I was me too. Hey, I, I, it's, I, I, young, we all okay, so we're all in the young, same young man on the here. yeah I, yep. It's... Yeah, young, angry, uh, 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 white boy. But um, of course, you know you can't. At a certain point, that dream dies, and so we, uh, you know, we recognized in the show he was, you know, I guess you could say an interesting case. I think I think he's just a more erudite and um, lettered version of any number of ex trots who almost like clockwork turned neocon around the 90s he just put it off a little bit longer we talked about him for a second on the show and then i just cut it out being like yeah fuck that guy i don't want to give him any more attention than he deserves you don't have to cut this out but yeah uh he's he was he was the um the thinking man's apologist for for war and uh, all the more disgusting because of that well think uh, speaking of ostensibly thinking apologists for war we also see the rehabilitation of Jennifer Rubin and Bill Crystal <laughs> who are now giving daily advice to liberals on the internet. Yeah, the uh the resistance is um is truly a big tent. I mean David uh, David point. Frum is probably the most like offensive example to me personally and we don't spend a yeah. ton of time with him on the show because 
we just have a limited cast of characters with whom we could work with to tell our story. But also, also, he did not come up with the phrase, according to Woodward, he did not come up with the phrase axis of evil. He, his claim to fame as a Bush speech writer, he didn't even he had something really shittier like uh, the axis of <laughs> axis of 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 um, ignobility or something, and uh, and then Michael Gerson. And someone was like, "What?" Yeah, the, the actual speech no. writer to Bush was like, uh, "Let's tune that well, up." A be, bit. Well, and it's so, also let's be clear: the guy who was the actual speech writer to Bush, there, Michael Gerson, was a much funnier and more interesting person than David Frum ever was. Like Michael Gerson, he, when he was like getting hopped up to write a Bush State of the Union, he gave himself a heart attack in his in, in like like in like his fervor for trying to write this up. And when he went to his doctor, his doctor told him that he was stressing himself out by thinking about by fantasizing too much about Bush and Iraq. He was too horny for for war. He was getting those those dick uh, implants from our ambassador to the Ayatollah in in Baghdad probably. For all that we've just said about the the press, you do make a point of of citing mainstream sources, which I, which I like a lot, and I think it's a it's a left approach to mass media that that I agree with because, like we were talking about earlier, although there are outright fabrications like what Judith Miller did, there are still lots of valuable facts turned up by mainstream reporters, and then there are some ex- exceptionally good ones like the people who were doing the work at McClatchy Knight that Ritter. was contradicting. Oh, was it Night Ritter? Was, yeah. Well, no, no, the, that's, that's the, a McClatchy property now. Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. In the DC Bureau. Yeah. But, you know, that that was getting syndicated in all kinds of medium-sized papers, but I wasn't seeing it reading the New York Times at the time, for example. I think what your approach is premised on is the correct idea that that the pernicious distortion is, sure, sometimes... The, the Judith Miller outright fabrications, but is most often to be found in this more basic framing of stories in particular and of the news in general. What's on the front page, what's buried on A16, whatever. The story isn't isn't so much censored or suppressed in the U.S. It, it, it's more obscured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's the old, you know, construal right of of American style uh, management of the press versus a more authoritarian idea we think of pravda or you know any i mean any... Brit- the uk is a good example they just censor shit there the press just does not have the same rights that it does sure here. but but ultimately these are like all liberal bourgeois constructs these are illusory freedoms that you don't you don't need to have as, as heavy a hand because in many ways the american press is uh all too happy to deliver uh the official narrative and the the narrative preferred by certainly in the case of the Iraq war, the Bush administration. Um, and so there's no need to crack down on them. You'll spoil a, a, a good relationship. And there's that, there's that old poem about uh, there's no need to bribe a British journalist uh, seeing is what he'll do unbribed. There's no occasion to. <laughs> um, so, so the same goes for America, but uh, we, that's not to say we didn't censor and do totalitarianism uh, style Over media there. management in Iraq. Yeah. yeah. Pa- Paul Bremer shut down Muqtada al-Sadr, uh, the, uh, Shia cleric that became the face of uh, resistance for uh, the underclass of Shia in in Iraq and in Baghdad. Um, He had a newspaper and the newspaper had accused Paul Bremer, uh, the viceroy, the American viceroy of of becoming uh, the new Saddam. So Bremer promptly shut down the the newspaper operating in uh, Muqtadr's neighborhood and imprisoned one of his lieutenants in a move to prove he was not the new authoritarian. I mean, this is kind of taking things in a new direction to to end on. But do you think that the corona crisis posing these sort of at least temporarily biological 
limits or contradictions to U.S. empire are provide an opportunity to think through the politics of American imperialism, to repoliticize the politics of of American imperialism at a time when everything on the one hand is kind of up for debate, but on the other hand, people are very distracted with just ensuring their emotional, physical, economic survival? I think that an obvious reference point here would be the sanctions we're imposing on Iran while they undergo an even more serious crisis than America, which is pretty high bar, and how it is directly resulting in untold suffering that will scar that country for decades to come. And it's it's a war crime. It's it's one of the arguments of our show is that, for example, the Iraqi sanctions in the 90s were as big of a crime and certainly created almost as much violence as the war, the invasion and conventional war itself that exploded after 2003. Similarly, I would say what we're doing to Iran, what we've been doing to Iran for a long time, uh, is one of the many war crimes that's taking place that coronavirus certainly puts in in full view. But unfortunately, I, I have to offer the pessimist answer right now. I think that unlike the Iraq war in which Americans, I mean, were basically just encouraged to consume more and enjoy it and maybe even walk around with a little bit of pride that you were kicking ass uh, overseas, right now, this is a crisis that's maybe for the first time in you know, 100 years actually affecting everyday Americans. And I don't know if, <laughs> as a people, if we're necessarily uh, going to uh, take that moment to broaden our sense of egalitarian notions of compassion or or sympathy or whether it will drive us to be ever more introverted and uh, dismiss the sufferings of others even when we're directly responsible i don't know uh, that that's that's what i'm vibrating toward right now but if there is any hope for something good to come out of this crisis i would hope that one of the things is ending the fucking sanctions against iran which is not only an inhumanitarian thing in and of itself during this this devastating plague, but is just like the Iraqi sanctions were in the 90s, almost certainly priming the pump for us to make war on them in the future, whether it be a year from now, five years from now, or or, or a little bit longer. And which almost happened a few months yes. ago. Yes, I mean, it's, and that was was a live question for us as we were making this. Feels like five years. Feels like five years ago, but that was yeah. just. A few I mean, what ago. another aftershock of the Iraq war? Yes. I mean, one thing that I would also advance as a kind of not so much like a good news or bad news kind of like view of it, uh, view of the situation, but is to say that one thing that we really tried to do with our show and, and, you know, where the title comes from, this idea of blowback is to suggest that actually these kinds of events of, you know, mass destruction and calamity are uh, they happen by design and they fit a certain a certain purpose and a and a set of goals that are not you know like people's they are their private interests and I think that with COVID you know obviously the coronavirus the, the virus does not it serves no master it's it's literally it's to nature but I think using coronavirus and, and sort of being wary of the ways in which you know these decisions that seem to just be creating more and more horrible chaos every day you know an overloaded unemployment system for example are actually serving the purpose of people who want to eliminate these things altogether I mean I know that it was a very thinly sourced kind the the Naomi Klein yes, thesis right. basically we should we yeah should yeah, this sure, isn't, yeah this isn't yeah like totally no, this isn't a no- novel analysis <laughs> we came up with on our own in the lab we could wait I think you could call it the 
Shock yeah, doctrine. Ah, by God. Yeah, yeah. Disaster, <laughs> d- disaster yeah. capitalism. But, yeah. but but whether or not but whether or not that you know there's disaster capitalism. Obviously, uh, imperialism is a part of that. Whether there's a disaster imperialism or a disaster anti-imperialism. Hopefully, I, I guess I guess that not to <laughs> cop out, but I guess that really does remain to be seen. Stuff could get really weird within the next couple of years in a good way as well, or in a nightmarish way. And yeah, I, I think that the. That the uh, just to not end it there, uh, I think that the circumstances that could give rise to something more constructive. I mean, the wheels of history are turning. I, I don't know whether or not capital can can fully recover from this. I think it's possible that it can, but I mean, it's 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 as probably as as panicked as anybody else as as a, as a as the big blob, you know, as the thing. But the focus for, for, I think, anyone on the left should be toward this exact question, you know, because uh, as the Naomi Klein thesis and, and many others tend to, tend, to, tend to go, this would be a great time for a lot of looting and a lot of pillaging and a lot of sneaky maneuvers to take place, just as they did in the catastrophe in Iraq, in which, you know, Exxon and, and Total Oil and uh, uh, Halliburton and, and Blackwater got to wet their beaks while a slow-moving genocide occurred over about five years in in, in that country. Um, So we need to be paying attention for that very approach uh, going forward. What I would hope that at the very least we can, you know, sort of identify at this moment is, you know, that, that this is what's like, we do at least now have like at least something resembling a toolkit and the beginnings of what look like mass movement politics that, you know, could maybe hope to address these in, uh, you know, should the crisis, uh, you know, should we ever be allowed to stand next to one another again? And that's sort of what I've been, at the very least, uh, that's that's what I've been hoping for. As long as things don't go back to normal, because that's the worst. Yes. That's that, that, that's that, the that, Yeah, be, that, that's my biggest fear, actually. I mean, aside from, you know, the bottom falling out totally and, you know, going in a Mad Max direction or whatever, or whatever like, like bullshit fantasy that is. But like, I agree with Brandon, a fear of go, I, going back to normal or or attempting to go back to what we would call a normal um, is really because uh, that's Iraq. That's, that's, not that's the Iraq war. <laughs> you know, it's fine. Yeah, that's the it, Iraq war. That's financial yes. deregulation. That's the mass deportations. That's everything. That and it just means preexisted. And it just means we're set up for at least some other crisis down the line um, of if not the same proportion similar. And that's a problem that we've really learned a lot about in this Democratic primary is that even though Trump's 2016 election is no doubt a symptom of a legitimacy crisis for the U.S. political and economic system, that part of the the mainstream liberal response to that legitimacy crisis is to precisely crave that return to an imagined normal. Well, yeah, let's not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Fuck, I ended it on a bad note. Um, Brendan James and Noah Cohen, thank you very much. Yeah, how did you not steer this uh, this conversation about the Iraq War into a sunny place? Yeah, I mean, it's like you could have told a joke. I, I don't know. It's. <laughs> Thank you so much. Brendan James is co-host and producer of Blowback and a writer, musician, and former producer of Chapo Trap House. Noah Colwyn is a co-host of Blowback, and he has covered technology and politics for The Outline, New York Magazine, Jewish Currents, and elsewhere. 
Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com, where you can also find out about joining or hosting a Dig book club. Please do follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or wherever else, please also rate and review us because that ostensibly helps introduce us to new and unsuspecting listeners. But what truly does that is you telling other people that you know about the show and why you like it and why they should listen to it. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.